Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, a strong and powerful Helene Olin. Helene, are you ready to do this? I am ready to chat. Excellent. Let's do this. Helene has been named as one of Business Insider's 50 Women Who Are Changing the World. She's an expert on money and society with a deep understanding of public policy topics. She's a blogger at the Washington Post. She's an author, speaker, and a frequent guest on many well-known outlets, and I'm excited to have you on. Helene, tell us a little bit about, about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Um, I am a, I write, I, I blog. These days I blog for the Washington Post opinion section two to three times a week, generally on economics and politics and workplace issues and where they all meet. Um, this week I wrote about um, Bernie Sanders' um, you know, $6 million haul in 24 hours um, after he announced. Um, and I've written uh, two books, Pound Foolish, Exposing the Dark Side of the Personal Finance Industry, which is really about how personal finance was sold to people as a way around income inequality and wealth, uh, and wealth inequality and how that obviously did not work out. Um, and followed by, um, the, I co-wrote with Harold Pollack, The Index card why personal finance doesn't have to be complicated um, because in part after I wrote pound foolish everybody said yes yes we agree with you but we live in the here and now what do we do with our money we trust you because so many people in this industry are so untrustworthy and I felt that was a legitimate question to ask me so I tried to answer it nice and I know that they've been re really well received and um, I've done a ton of research and watched a lot of your interviews and it seems like all the information you're putting forth is definitely makes a lot of sense and and is is easy for for me to understand so i have to imagine other people to understand as well so i i i appreciate the work and i'm sure that it takes a ton of time to write books and let alone two so thank you oh you're welcome what's it like to be named 50 women who are changing the world does that drop a lot of pressure on you or is that is is that very flattering? I'm still trying to figure out how to make it work so that my teenage boys listen to me. Um, that's, it doesn't seem to have made much of an impression. Really? Though I will say when I talk to a presidential candidate, they are kind of impressed with me for about 12 hours. Then it tends to wear back <laughs> off again. So um, that's the main change as far as I can tell. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I... I I, I shot you a message saying, hey, I've been trying to get my brain around the the national debt and the deficit that that seems to be going up and up and up. And depending on who you listen to and the questions you ask, you get a different answer. Um, and so many of the people that are listening to our conversation today are just ordinary ordinary investors who are saving money and, and working. And I think that they probably have the same kind of questions that I do. So just wanted to get your take on on the deficit level spending as it is and what we should be doing or what we should be worried about or not worried about. Um, I think I don't think there are 12 people who really wonder about the deficit. I actually disagree with you. Um, I think the deficit is one of these things that gets used politically by people who have an agenda. 
Um, people seem to worry about the deficit when it's something they're not interested in spending money on. They seem a heck of a lot less concerned about it when they do want to spend the money, right? So, say, Republican tax reform of 2017. Somehow, the deficit didn't seem to matter very much when the rich people got this massive tax break when everybody else got left with crumbs. And I mean crumbs quite literally. We are talking less than $20 a week for the typical worker, um, which is set to expire in 2025, while the gains to the wealthiest are not sunsetted and are num- and total in the tens of thousands of dollars annually. Okay, So people got hosed. Secondarily, people tend to use the deficit to talk about things like Social Security, right, which doesn't really have a finance, major financing problem, not that you would know that from when pe- the way people talk about it. So it's generally used as an excuse to go after social welfare programs and spending on things that average, ordinary people like you or me want. People generally don't talk about the deficit when it comes to tax breaks for the wealthy or the military. So if there's not that many people who are thinking about it, shouldn't more people be thinking about it? If- Absolutely not. There's no reason to be worrying about it. You need to be worrying about the here and now. The here and now is that we live in a country with record-breaking income inequality and wealth inequality. This is roiling our politics. At the same time, we have the imminent catastrophe of global warming coming up. That is the thing, two things you really should be worried about. The deficit is like a tiny little piece of there that really, if you're worrying about it, it is literally not even thinking about the trees for the forest. It's thinking about a, sh- about, um, a, a twig on a bush on a shrub in the forest. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right, so what we should be focused on is is – Wealth inequality. So, right. how should how should the 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 average investor, ordinary American, be thinking about that, or what what should they be doing, pushing, asking to to start making some changes? First of all, I hate calling people investors. Okay, we're all residents of the United States, right? A lot of us are citizens of the United States. This is how we should be properly thought of. Okay, to think of people as an investor is to just buy into this concept that either people are worthwhile doing something or they're not. Okay, and I, I just don't buy that at all. Um, what people should be doing, first of all, is exercising their civil rights. They should vote. They should be informed. I mean, or try to be informed. They should, you know, really be looking out for their political interests because ultimately this is a, a systemic issue, and it's only going to be cured systemically. It's not going to be fixed by somebody's individual investments in their 401k. And I say that, by the way, getting that people have 401ks, and we all have to invest in the meantime because we have to look out for our future. But ultimately, our future is bigger than you or me, okay? And looking out for ourselves one by one has not proven to be a particularly effective way of protecting people in our society, um, as we have all sadly learned over the past you know, 20 years. Okay. So me just worrying about what I'm doing has, has not necessarily gotten the country to gotten individuals it's got not gotten the country where where we need to be because wealth inequality income inequality has gotten greater and greater and greater is that right and and our social safety net has deteriorated markedly you know the fact of the matter is is if people are being told right now to you know prepare for retirement 
um, based on projections that they'll retire in their mid-60s. Well, studies have come out in the past few months that have backed up observations made by people like me for the longest time, which is that age discrimination is rampant, that the vast majority of people over the age of 50 will be forced out of their jobs in some way, whether that's deliberately being fired, laid off as a mass layoff, or just being shoved, shoved out where they resign and be unable to, you know, come anywhere near their previous income because of the prevalence of age discrimination. This is just one tiny problem, by the way, but I'm pointing it out to say that, you know, these things are systemic issues, and they need to be thought of as systemic problems. Okay, so looking at it from uh, a a systemic standpoint, are there certain things that, is is it, is it, a total shift in in thinking is it a democrat or republican thing how how do we get moving in the right direction to actually start addressing these things it needs to happen well, from a systemic yeah well i think the thing that happened is i mean you know i think you know there's been this shift in thinking in the past 10 years and i think it's a, a, a lot of it is was caused by the great recession of 2008 um i think you know, I've said Occupy Wall Street made a major change in getting the discourse out on this. Um, I always say as a writer and journalist who's been doing this for a couple of decades, prior to Occupy Wall Street, whatever people think of it or don't think of it, I would have a very hard time explaining income and wealth inequality to people in a way that they could comprehend. I mean, people either didn't believe it or they literally, in many cases, didn't appear to know what the heck I was talking about. Um, And I mean that very seriously, like people literally just kind of couldn't comprehend it. I think everybody now knows what it is, whether they agree it exists or not, and how what effect it's having is a different issue. But there's no argument anymore about the fact that this does exist. And it is, you know, for the most part, a huge issue that needs to be dealt with in some way. So I would say that. I would say secondarily, what changed dramatically was the 2016 election. And I would say that of both the Democratic and the Republican parties. On the Republican side, um, aside from the fact Donald Trump actually got himself elected president, he did something I always I pointed to in 2015, um, which was when everybody was up on a debate stage on the Republican side, basically competing for who could cut Social Security the fastest and quickest and who could throw their mother under the bus the fastest. Donald Trump stood up on a stage and said, I won't cut Social Security or Medicare. Um, my husband can tell you that I looked at him, he looked at me, and I said, that's the guy who's going to be the Republican nominee. <laughs> um, people want to be taken care of. This is a very basic fact. Um, on the Democratic side, um, we saw what happened. Um, you know, there was an attempt to more or less annoy Hillary Clinton as the, as the you know, as president. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders got a huge amount of support, support that appears to be holding quite firm, given that, you know, he's, you know, comes in at numbers, I think, number two, generally, when there's polling done as to who's most likely to get, you know, the Democratic nomination in 2020. And the fact that this week he brought in a haul of six million bucks in 24 hours when he announced. And by the way, almost all small donors, apparently, or at least that's what they're saying right now, um, would break down to about an average of somewhere around 27 to 30 dollars a donation. Which is, is, is absolutely amazing. So. Right, and that's truly amazing, and it tells you that there's huge pressure out there that people want the system changed. Mm-hmm. Um, people didn't vote for Donald Trump because they were happy with the status quo. 
No, that there's <laughs> there's no two ways about that. <laughs> and it's also fascinating to me that uh, it's seemingly one of the most famous um, politicians in the world right now is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and I had no idea who she was up until she won uh, won won that election, and now it seems like all eyes are on her. So it does certainly indicate that that people are interested in something different. Right. I remember when people, I live in New York, and I remember when people were telling me she could win. I, I, I mean, no insult to her. My eyes were all but rolling. I mean, I was like, oh, really? Right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, famous last words on my part. Um, I admit to being as shocked by as anyone that she won. Um, and I think, you know, what she's done is also, you know, change the discourse. Most people want to see taxes raised on the wealthiest Americans. Um, in fact, polling data has actually been fairly consistent on that for a very long time. But, um, you know, it seems to have increased dramatically in the past couple of years, probably because people are increasingly realizing that their interests are not with the top tier of earners. And, and I think this is an important shift that I'd like to talk about for a minute, because Americans, unlike Europeans, tend to identify up, right? It's, you know, well, I could be the person leaving a $20 million fortune, so we shouldn't have an inheritance tax, right? right. And, you know, that's a real shift in how Americans think. Now, it happens to be a shift in favor of realism. I mean, most Americans think we have this amazingly equal society and, you know, everybody's got an equal chance to get ahead. In fact, we, you know, have much more um, class stagnation than, than Europeans from supposedly much more hidebound societies. They're actually much more equal than we are. Um, very few people seem to realize this. Got it. So I, I, I read an article about how Bill Gates is um, suggested that he felt like one of the best ways to tax the ultra wealthy is to increase the tax rate on capital gains. Do you have thoughts on that? I, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, what he was talking about, if I'm remembering right, was both raising, increasing the tax on capital gains, which is, after all, income, and it is income mostly earned by the top you know, 1% followed by the top, you know, 2% and so on down the line to about 10%, get to the bottom 50, 60%. People barely have capital gains, right? Right. Um, But secondarily, this is also coming up in a Bernie Sanders proposal to solidify the social security system. And his suggestion to both raise benefits, which is really important, by the way, because most people don't have enough saved for retirement, right? And that's not a situation that's getting fixed anytime soon, unfortunately. No. Um, is to begin to uh, to eliminate the payroll tax cap at I'm forgetting if it was two hundred fifty thousand or three hundred fifty thousand, and um, consider capital gains and dividends as income. Um, this is most people. I will say, do not realize there is a thing called a payroll tax cap on Social Security, that it stops at about 130 something thousand dollars in income. Um, and when they are informed about this and they are informed that, you know, eliminating it or, you know, cutting it back so that it, you know, protects some people in the upper middle class range, but, you know, really insists on taxing the wealthy, you know, and that would basically clean up Social Security's, quote, you know, supposed funding problems um, are, you know, immediately in favor of it. I mean, it's one of the more extraordinary things. I'll talk to a room full of people and it doesn't matter where they are on the political spectrum. They generally don't know this thing exists and they don't want any part of it when they hear it. Right. Yeah, I appreciate that. 
Okay, excellent. Um, well, I, I wanted to find out um, where where you get your news, how, how you keep yourself informed, and I don't know how much time you spend reading or, or, or consuming news, but then your advice to, to regular people who just want to be able to make good decisions and who agree with what you're talking about, um, where you would suggest that they read or get their news. Facebook. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Twitter, Facebook. Twitter. Come on, people. Um, I I read. I read widely. I mean, I do follow links on Facebook and Twitter. I won't lie about that. Um, I read the New York Times and the, the L.A. Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal pretty religiously. I'm not going to say I pick up a, a you know a hard copy and read it cover to cover, but you know those. I would say those are four places I routinely check in with every single day. I consider all four of them stupendous. Um, I want to give a particular shout out to the LA Times where I used to um, you know, do writing for many years ago, um, which I love and which is an amazing paper that does not have a high profile on the East Coast, though it does on the West Coast. Um, but you know, all four of those and you, know, you are pretty much, I don't want to say covered because you're not going to start picking up on the stuff that's percolating sure. up. But most people don't need to be picking up on the stuff that's percolating up, right? right. That's my job. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> uh, you, you know, that's that starts to be where you're making yourself crazy following, you know, following politics or whatever, right? or business news or or you know wh- whatever your um, particular thing is. Yeah, appreciate that. So I don't know how many years it's been since you wrote Pond Foolish. Um, do you feel like the, uh, the that the financial industry is is with technology? Is it getting better for consumers and regular people, or is it staying the same? Can I answer both? Sure. I, <laughs> I, you know, there has definitely been somewhat more attention paid to the issue of advice being given under the fiduciary standard that people need to be acting in some, you know, that advisors need to act in somebody's best interest. There's no question in my mind there is more awareness of that now as a topic than there was when I was writing Pound Foolish, which really now goes back almost 10 years. Um, yes, the original essay that started the book will be will celebrate its 10th anniversary this That's May, great. actually. I know it's shocking how fast time goes. <laughs> But on the other hand, thanks in part to the Trump administration, people are less protected than they were a couple of years ago. The Obama administration was going to do something about that. To give one particular example, the Trump administration rolled that back. Uh, there has been you know, little protection of small investors in terms of um, – you know, things like how investing in IPOs, um, you know, that's been a whole issue that has gone on from the Jobs Act onward. Um, that did start under Obama, I should say. I do think that there is, to an extent, a little too much emphasis placed on the idea that technology is going to solve people's financial woes by allowing them to track their money. I think it helps. But I think ultimately people don't have enough money. And I think, you know, that's there's no technology that can solve that problem for you unless it grows the economy. No doubt. Well, Helene, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Oh, um, follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can read me at the Washington Post. Those are my two most regular places these days, I would say. Um, or you can buy my books, which are Pound Foolish, 
um, exposing the dark side of the personal finance industry, and the personal finance guide I co-wrote with um, my dear friend Harold Pollack at the University of Chicago, um, the index card, why personal finance doesn't have to be complicated. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Helene your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Follow her on Twitter. Read her at the Washington Post. Pick up a copy of her books. I will list all of those in the show notes. Thank you again, Helene. Oh, thank you for having me on. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing. Leave us a review. And definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on.